Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now, right from your living room. The best antidote to anxiety is action. There are 83 days until the most important election of our lives. And with your help, we can win all of the houses. That's right. Hector Sanchez Barba is the executive director and CEO of Mi Familia Vota. He joins us today to talk about how immigrants are under attack, disproportionately affected by the coronavirus, and how we can help support the communities that need it the most. Mm -hmm. From the census to voter suppression, he's on the front lines of so much important work to support the Latinx community and our country. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And this this is How How We We Win. Big news of the day. We have a Veep. Because we've got a ticket. We have our ticket. Biden-Harris 2020. Biden-Harris 2020. It's a really good ticket. I'm really excited about Kamala Harris as Veep. And you know her well. You you got a chance to work with her on her Senate campaign. How are you feeling about this? I'm excited. I worked on the Senate campaign and I worked in the Ater- California Attorney General's office. And... Um, I had a lot of people in the that we heard were in the running that I was very excited about. So I never I never said this, but I knew she was going to be the pick. Like she she's such an obvious choice and she's a great choice and I'm, I'm so excited. I said it. I called it on Twitter. No one follows me, so they didn't see it, but I did. <laughs> Let's get you some followers since you're giving out all the all the juicy details and information. Obvious choice. What a strong ticket. And uh, she's just a a powerhouse. So smart. And boy, you know what I wouldn't want to do is debate Kamala Harris. Um, Let me tell you how much this woman prepares for anything, any speaking engagement, but especially debates. Mm. As soon as the announcement came out, the Pence team had some nonsense ready to go. He's not ready. He's not ready for her. (laughs) Like, come on, this debate is going to be so good. But, you know, Kamala Harris, fighter, defender of the people, I think that you know, when she was running for president, she took a lot of flack for being a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that she has another opportunity right now to articulate why she became a prosecutor and why she felt that um, working from the inside was going to be the best way to help communities, to help families, and to help reform the criminal justice system that you know, she's been saying for years needs so much improvement and change. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just excited because she's been so impressive in every office that she's held. And we've seen her in Senate hearings really be a star in, in those proceedings. By any measure, she would make an amazing president and uh, is going to be a spectacular vice president. And all of that's not even to mention the fact that she is a black woman and making history as the first black woman to be a major party nominee for that post. So I'm just I couldn't be happier. I'm very excited. 
Yeah, she's made history as a as a black woman and as a, a woman with Southeast Asian roots as well um, right. in in a number of cases. And I think you know a lot of this. It, it really her being a woman, being a black woman, a woman of color, really informed the path that she's been on for so long. And obviously, we saw that kind of come to a head in one of the debates last year with. Was it last year with Joe Biden? Oh my God, <laughs> the past year feels like it was a lifetime ago. The, exactly um, with Joe Biden, but I just want to say that you know they obviously were competing for the same office. You're going to say critical and harsh things about somebody, but they're also very close and they've been close for a very long time. Kamala Harris was very good friends with Bo Biden, mm. who was Joe Biden's son. They were both um, attorneys general at the same time. Um, Bo Biden was attorney general for Delaware and, and that's how he and Kamala Harris got to know each other. And um, that's how she got to know the Biden family. Um, and then she and Joe Biden became close after Bo's uh, death. So I think they have a closer relationship than people might be aware of. So it's not out of the blue that he would pick her. No, I think they're I think they're going to be a great team. And, um, you know, debates get nasty and you're in it to to win and to make your point. And, and it speaks volumes about him that he sees the qualities that she has and doesn't hold a grudge. I can think of someone else who currently mm -hmm. holds uh, the presidency right now who would never, ever, ever give someone quarter that said anything, you know, negative about them. So that's such a great point. Like um, imagine where what position Mike Pence would be in if he'd ever bothered to be actually critical about Donald Trump. And when you can't speak your mind to your running mate, your partner, the person who, whose back you're supposed to have, um, then are you really going to be that effective right. at your job? No, not at all. And, and if you, I mean, that's what we need in a leader is someone who will actually listen to criticism and mm -hmm. take people's perspectives and, um, and not take it, you know, personal all the time or, or just fire them offhand because they don't agree with you or demand loyalty. That's, that is, uh, the opposite of who Joe Biden is. And, um, you know, it's really illustrated with this choice for VP. Okay. So we've got our team, we've got our ticket and we're ready to work now, even more than we were before. Yeah. 83 days. But as you always point out, um, Ballots drop in early September in some states, so it's it's less than that. Yeah, we got to get on it, doggone it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we already are on it. We've been on it. Like, l listen, we've been on it, and now the end is in sight, and everybody's kicking into high gear as as best they can. Yeah, I love that. We got to get on it, doggone it. That's got to be a, a How We Win t-shirt. We need a swag <laughs> shop. <laughs> Uh, I just say things that I've grown up hearing and I can't take, I can't take credit for any of the cool things that I say. It's your last show for a little while. Yes. I have a baby doing jumping jacks in my belly right now, which <laughs> I think might mean that he's, he's going to be here very shortly. 
But you know what? <laughs> Somebody gave me as a, a baby shower gift a baby swing left t-shirt. So I, I definitely think that there's some pictures in the future. I love it. A future future voter t-shirt that you can find on the Swing Left website. That's a great plug for the Swing Left uh, <laughs> swag. Go to the Swing Left store. There's some great stuff there. There's some cute stuff, <laughs> whether you're a baby or a grown-up. <laughs> I have a lot of Swing Left shirts. I mean, this is this sounds like a commercial, but it's really not. It's like when I'm out and about in a Swing Left shirt, people are like, Oh yeah, you're one of our people. Right? It's fun. Yeah. yeah. Got to um, rep your crew. But if you're going to wear the the swag and people know that you're doing the work, let's talk about what that work looks like right now. Yes. Well, we have a great interview coming up with the it's executive. So good. Yeah, the executive director um, and CEO of Mi Familia Vota. If you're not familiar with that organization, they are on the ground, um, obviously focused on the Latinx community and have been doing so much great work there. It's so important to support the organizations that are on the ground doing this work, and I believe that we need to be putting our power and our energy and supporting the communities that need us the most because it's the ethical right thing to do to support people who need the most help. And this is our community. This is our electorate. And this is how we build our lasting power. Yeah. And I think it's, it was also an important reminder. I mean, everybody was so fired up and rightly so about what was happening at the border and then right. so much happened since then that distraction is not the right word. It's just like we have a lot piled onto our plates. And so this conversation is going to be an important reminder about all the things that are going on right now and what's at stake. And um, it's just another opportunity, which I'm always grateful for, for us to ask ourselves, what kind of country do we want to be? And what do we need to get us there? And this um, conversation has a lot of those answers. Yeah. Talk about a community that has been under attack by Trump in this administration from mm -hmm. day one. So what else has the demon been up to? <laughs> well, speaking, you know, I mean, like speaking of Trump, he put out these executive orders at, his, at the country club. The thing about what we're talking about with communities of color and communities that are disenfranchised and the people who are hit the hardest by the coronavirus, uh, these executive orders leave those people out. I mean, a, a payroll tax cut, talking about cutting capital gains and, and then lauding how the stock market is doing. It's just there are, are essential workers and mm -hmm. immigrants who are uh, – you know, farm workers and everything are getting just slammed by the coronavirus and have no resources. Right. And this absolutely does not acknowledge any of them or give any help to those people who are hurt the most. Yeah, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors um, with these executive orders. So we have to make sure that part, part of our responsibility is making sure that people understand what they actually say and not what Trump says they say. Uh, yeah. And the payroll tax cut is is one of those. Yeah, you can tell when Trump is lying about something because his lips are moving. And that, <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> um, one thing that he has been very honest about is um, destroying the post office from the inside. Mm. 
He's installed a fundraiser friend to to be the postmaster general. And that person is making all sorts of cuts and we're seeing the mail delayed and we're seeing um, them preventing postal workers from accessing overtime and things like that. And of course, all of this is not to save money or slow down the mail or anything like that. It's to prevent people from voting by mail in in, um, October and November. That's exactly right. And let's talk about what what we can do around this, because um, the most important component I think that we need to do right now, and I know that a lot of campaigns are are adding this into their phone banking script and starting to do this, but it's voter education. Like Mm -hmm. all of this, you know, the coronavirus, people getting ballots in the mail when they're not used to getting ballots in the mail, having new kind of protocols for voting locations. And now with the mail potentially not able to handle all the vote by mail stuff, we need to get people to vote early. Like that early vote is going to be so important. When they get a ballot dropped, they have to know that it's there. They have to fill it out and get it in right away. So that's going to be a big part of the work that we do. Uh, Mm -hmm. As I said, starting in September, starting when these ballots drop, we can't wait till E-Day. We've got to educate voters about what's going on, how important it is that they get those ballots in soon or drop them off in drop boxes if they're able to do it safely. Right. And then there are, there are going to be options that you should look into for, um, depending on what state you're in, for tracking your ballot, whether that's through the post office or through uh, your county elections official, so that you can double check and make sure that, that it arrives and figure out when it arrives. Yeah. So a lot of education. This is your last reason for hope for a while. So, you know, what has brought you hope this week, Mariah? Um, what's brought me hope this week is all of the people listening, taking action, everybody who's bothered to listen to my voice. Thank you for supporting what we hope is a a useful and inspiring tool and podcast. And thank you for the work that I know that you're doing. I'm seeing so many of the letter writing parties, the postcarding, the phone banking, the text banks that run out of numbers so quickly. We're seeing that, I know Steve doesn't like to talk about polling, but we're Mm. seeing some incredible polling numbers. We're seeing people take to the streets, even though this is a really difficult time to do that. And I'm just so grateful for all the work that you're doing out there. Um, We've got 83 days left to do it. We can do anything for 83 days, and then we'll be gearing up um, to hold the folks that we're about to elect accountable. So the work won't end, but there's going to be a really big party, whether it's (laughs) on Zoom or in your home or in the streets um, in 83 days that I, I can't wait for. So you give me hope, person listening right now. What's your reason for hope, Steve? I love that. No, I'm going to let you have the last word on that. I don't think I need to add anything there. That that was perfect. And, you know, what gives me hope is uh, your beautiful new son that's coming into the world. So I'm excited for that. Oh, thank you. I'm excited for him, too. Can't wait to meet him. Um, let's put some people to work, though. There's stuff to be done. Yes. In the meantime. So we have some calls to action. We are going to re-up the call from last week to make calls to the Senate about the HEROES Act and the census. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Stacey Abrams, an amazing. If you ha- if you didn't hear last week's episode with Stacey Abrams, please go back Ooh, and listen to yeah. that because she breaks down voter suppression and the importance of the census in uh, just very clear and articulate way as she does. So. I'll put a link to it, but we have a phone number that's toll-free for you that Democracy for America has provided to get directly connected to the Senate. Tell them to pass the HEROES Act now. It's been three months since the House passed it. Um, It's sitting on uh, Mitch's desk, and we need to get it off his desk and get some actual help to people and not Mm -hmm. these bullshit executive orders. And that includes uh, state support for carrying off safe elections. Yes, very important. Along, al- al- along with relief for families. So a super important bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a, in a couple minutes, you're going to hear about the Basta Trump campaign from Hector. Um, and we're going to send you to mefamiliavota.org so that you can help participate in that. Yes. And let's hear from Hector. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Hector Sanchez Barba is the executive director and CEO of Mi Familia Vota, a senior fellow at GW Cisneros Hispanic Leadership Institute and the chair emeritus of the National Hispanic Leadership Agenda. He's a leading voice in advancing policy priorities, civic participation, and fighting systemic injustices against Latinos, immigrants, and the most vulnerable communities in our country. Hector, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. No, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate to to be in this important space. Oh, absolutely. We're we're lucky to have you and grateful for all of your work. And we want to hear about um, everything you're doing right now. But before we do, um, just a little bit about you. How did you get your start in politics? What were the first things that you jumped into? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, reflecting on politics, politics, uh, sometimes when we talk about politics, we think about politics in D.C. and the big things. But for me, my start was uh, with my dad. He had a little drugstore and I, I'm a Mexican immigrant. I come from central Mexico, a city called Celaya. And there were some farming towns around the city and the farmers come to my dad's um, store. And many times they didn't have a the money to pay for the full prescription. And my dad used to give them in Spanish, it's called fiado. So you take it and you you just pay when you have the possibility. Hmm. I remember talking with my dad about the politics and why some people couldn't even have money to put on the table when they work so hard. And how others, they don't really work that hard and have a lot of, of wealth. I think that was the, a little bit of the beginning of my own political a career in Mexico at the time, it was under one party system. Mm-hmm. So I remember being in the shoulders of my dad. I didn't know at the time, but it was what is now the conservative party. I'm very, very progressive, but it was just um, an element of asking for democracy when we had a one party system. So 
I think that's how we started the politics, always questioning why some people can work so hard and still don't have enough to eat and why some others claiming to give so many contributions to humanity. But for me, it's unacceptable that some people are making billions and billions of dollars when others cannot even put food on their table. So that's an incredible background story. And then we fast forward to now and, um, you know, sometimes I'm, I still pinch myself over like who the president is and how we elected such a bold-faced racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Latino community really has borne the brunt of his incompetence and, and vicious attacks. How is me, Familia Vota, fighting back? And talk to us about the Basta Trump campaign. No, that's a very important question. And let me contextualize my answer on the, cele- the what happened yesterday. It was the one-year anniversary of the shooting in El Paso. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt uh, that this is really directly correlated to Donald Trump. Mm. It's sad to say, but I knew this was going to happen because from the moment he started his campaign, he started attacking immigrants, attacking Latinos, and attacking our communities. And we immediately start seeing a very serious increase on hate and violence in, in, in against our community. Every day in my office, I get emails or calls from different people in the field just telling us stories. I was with my daughter in a parking lot speaking in Spanish, and I was confronted by people, and they attacked me or they verbally attacked me or racial profiling, etc. So since Trump took office, uh, there has been a drastic increase of 26% on hate crimes and violence against our community. Mm. So it's very sad. And then we had the one-year anniversary of uh, the killings in El Paso that killed almost um, uh, 25 people uh, and a guy that literally himself uh, growed about Trump and, and coming after Mexicans, I'm quoting here. So this is a very important issue because a country that claims to be the example of democracy, the example of thinking of how to improve a democracy is an international embarrassment to have somebody like Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, and myself as an immigrant, I feel that I have a commitment to do everything in my capacity to make this a more inclusive and a stronger democracy. And that's why I, I do this kind of work with organizations like Mi Familia Vota. So how do we arrive to the Basta Trump campaign? Earlier this year, uh, we had a strategic meeting to define uh, the work of 2020. Mm -hmm. We knew this was the most important election in the history of our community. I know we hear those lines all the time, but this one is true. It really is true. (laughs) Really, if we don't get this guy out of the White House, everything will be on the line. The pillars of justice that it took decades and decades to build for many communities the civil rights movements, the women's rights movement, the amazing fights of the African-American community, the legacy of the Latino community, Native Americans, LGBTQ, etc. All those amazing histories that show that fighting for justice pays off is on the line if this guy gets reelected. He has destroyed all those pillars of justice in things that don't even make it to the news. I know the federal government, I know policy, etc. And we had victories in the last administration that with a signature, this guy is destroying. So we know that we need to get rid of this guy is the biggest threat. So we decided as an organization, an organization that is heavily represented by immigrants, 
that we needed to do everything that we can to make sure that we kick him out of office. The Latino vote is very important, and the Latino vote can be decisive, especially because how the Electoral College works. So we decided to build the most aggressive C4, meaning more partisan campaign, in the history of the Latino community. Wow. And we did it in a very strategic approach to make sure that we get the Latinos out to vote and vote against Trump. That's amazing. I want to talk more about that and and how you're doing that. I mean, right now, the Latino community is dramatically disproportionately affected by the coronavirus pandemic. And this pandemic is really exposed in such a terrible and tangible way, the inequities that are built into our American society. Mm -hmm. um, how is your re reaching out affected by the coronavirus? And also, I heard one of your colleagues in a meeting talking about this last week. Is the Latino community getting the message that the response is just a, a failed leadership coming from the top, coming from Trump? How are they perceiving this? There is no doubt that it has been a huge failure how Trump responded to the coronavirus. I remember earlier in the year when it was very clear the tendency of how serious this was that I immediately called a, a meeting with all my staff. And for us, a field organization is our biggest strength. The health and safety of our teams, but also for community was so important. So we immediately took a, a decision to stay home it was so critical and important to, to protect our communities, especially when we had no federal guidance and no clarity on right. how bad this was for the United States. So we immediately turned all the field operations into digital operations. We saw this as an opportunity to strengthen all the digital capacities that we have and get the best uh, technology that is out there to continue organizing with the community, with phones, with texting, with all the digital, with all the online and social media, et cetera. Uh, we're a trusted organization. We work with all the different fields and the most trusted pillars in our communities. So we continue doing that, but the top priority was to educate the community about COVID. So I created, we created partnerships with the most important organizations, Latin organizations in the nation doing anything related to COVID. And we created a guide that we provide on every contact that we had with people. So if you had questions about unemployment, if you had questions about being undocumented under COVID, if you had questions about mental health, domestic violence, et cetera, we were providing this information and then continue doing the civic participation work. That's great. But your question really goes to a central piece that we need to reflect as a nation. And the question is, why are Latinos and immigrants the most affected by COVID? Right. And I think the answer goes to the hypocrisy of the kind of nation that we are with when it comes to immigrants. Immigrants are a central pillar that keeps our economy and our society going. Yet, we haven't been able as a nation to even have something so basic and element, element basic like DACA. Mm -hmm. Just basically welcoming the children of immigrants that contribute so much to our society or economy or future, and we cannot even welcome their children legally into our nation, something is really broken with just a nation that is ungrateful to 11 million undocumented that are putting everything on the line for just to give a better life to their children. And there are entire sectors of the economy that depend on these workers. 
Farm workers are mostly all of them undocumented. Right. Services industry heavily depend on that construction, etc. So my message to all these people that don't want undocumented workers in the nation, do something about it. When you go to the supermarket, never buy a fruit that has been touched with immigrant hands. <laughs> never buy a house that has been built with immigrant hands. Never drive in roads that have been built with immigrant hands. And then we know that they are practical about this anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm. But if we want these immigrants and the labor of these immigrants, we need to fully include them in our society. In the context of COVID, 80% of undocumented workers in the nation are essential workers, meaning they are the ones on the streets providing everything for us in the luxury of our houses right. that can be working from home. Mostly white communities are the ones that are overrepresented having jobs and working from home. So we need to really reconsider the whole concept of how hypocritical we are in our national analysis towards immigrants. And when are we going to finally say enough? and have an inclusion of these immigrants to our society. And that's part of our campaign. Um, one thing that I've, I've really appreciated about all of the things that you've, you've said um, so far is that it's really contextualizing the life and death consequences of this election, the economic consequences of this election, policy consequences of this election. So many of our swing states, as, as we, you know, turn our attention to November are becoming more competitive and even turning blue because of Latino voters and uh, changing demographics there. So how do Democrats need to engage with these communities in more meaningful and less transactional ways? Everybody talks about the Latino vote. Nobody talks about the serious lack of investment in Latino democracy. Right. I done a lot of analysis on democracy and we have a lot of research on the issue. There is a direct correlation between spending and money and turnout. Most of the money in the nation historically, when it comes to democracy, goes to white communities. Obviously, we were familiar with the historical exclusion of the African-American community and all the amazing battles. Now that we are mourning the death of uh, the amazing uh, John Lewis, Selma mm -hmm. Montgomery marches, etc. But in the Latino community, there has is the most underfunded community when it comes to democracy. We can look at the spending from foundations. They only spend one percent of their total budgets in the Latino community when we are almost twenty percent of the population. Wow. We can look at the parties, both parties, and we can see historically that they have taken the community for granted when it comes mm -hmm. to investments. Yep. Uh, I had a campaign earlier this year where I met with all the presidential candidates in the primary, the Dems, and I asked all of them, how much are you spending in the Latino community? They gave me a number. Most of them didn't have a number. In what percentage of your total budget that is? How many Latinos uh, and Latinas you have in your staff? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are your commitments on policy priorities? What can you commit to do in the first 100 days? So we have all this in video. And hopefully when we have a new president elect, we're going to immediately launch a campaign to put pressure on those policy priorities. But the point is, nobody historically is really investing in the Latino community in good numbers. We as an organization know, in Mi Familia Vota, we do this on the ground, 
that when you do the right investments, Latinos come out in historical numbers and turn out even more than other communities. So the message right now for this election is let's do the right thing. Let's invest in the Latino community. Let's do the border education. Let's make sure that we have all the tools that we don't want something exclusive for us. We just want just something that is uh, adequate for our community to be able to vote in this election. And I have seen the excitement of the people ready to engage and the understanding of what is happening. We have the census going on right now, and Trump has recently put out an executive order to uh, exclude undocumented residents. And census outreach is now ending a month early. Now it's supposed to end on September 30th. How are you fighting against this blatant effort to undercount communities of color? And how can we help make sure that this doesn't happen? Yeah, this is a very important fight for what the census represents. The census in the Constitution literally says every single person in the nation needs to be counted. Yep. And this is so critical because this is directly related to how funds and political power are distributed in the nation. So it's very important for everybody to make sure that we put a structural pressure on, on how Trump is trying to damage our democracy and remove power from uh, minorities in the nation. We have done a lot of things in, in partnership with other Latino organizations. We have been putting a lot of pressure with organizations from the legal point of view, like MALDEF and uh, Latino Justice PALDEF, with organizations like NALEO, with organizations that have field operations like ARS, UNIDOS, LULAC, Voto um, Latino, etc. So a lot of organizations in the nation really putting pressure to make sure that we say enough, which is what Basta Trump is, enough to all this mm -hmm. extremism, excluding and using tricks to remove all kind of power for us. This is not something new in the history of our nation, but in 2020, this should be unacceptable to really try to find as many ways as possible to remove political power from the different communities and the amazing diversity of the nation. Uh, that is supposed to be what democracy is all about. Mm -hmm. Democracy should be an easy access for everybody to have a voice, easy access for everybody to participate, easy access to be able to be counted. And every single step that Trump has taken during his administration is the opposite, which is also a reflection of his personal life, using tricks to get away with very horrible things that he has done as a human being and, and also as a as a politician in the White House, somebody that literally has been promoting hate and violence from the White House, inciting hate and violence, having people in the White House, close advisors that uh, are associated with the KKK. Right. Mm. What kind of time are we living in? And that's why we as a nation, regardless what is our political orientation, we must say enough to this kind of extremism. Yeah, we know that um, one of the, the some of the tricks that that the Trump administration and the campaign are uh, gearing up for for this fall are voter suppression and intimidation. Um, those are going to be their their go to tactics. What did you see during the primaries that concerned you uh, around this, and how is Mi Familia Vota fighting back against it? Well, if you have three hours, I can give you more <laughs> <laughs> right. But 
we have seen voter suppression from a lot of different elements. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have Trump literally tweeting on a daily basis against voting by mail. By the way, he votes by mail. And I think like 16 people from his administration vote by mail. It's one of the safest, more secure uh, ways to, to vote. And he's trying to create all these elements of misinformation. Now he's trying to push the election to another time because he's not secure, et cetera. Right. But voter suppression, we see it in our communities on a daily basis. We live it. I remember in the last presidential election, I was actually in Orlando. But just so people understand what it means for Latinos to vote in general. Uh, we had a campaign for voter uh, protection in, in Orlando, in Central Florida, very heavy uh, Puerto Rican community. Mm-hmm. And the line, it was 95 degrees. The line was six hours long, no shade, no water. Wow. We actually had to turn the campaign into buying water for people and providing umbrellas, etc. Because regardless of what is your social status, even if you are super wealthy and have, have somebody holding an umbrella and giving you fresh beverages, I'm not sure you're going to wait six hours and a half to vote. Right. So where are we expecting the most vulnerable communities in the nation, working class families that have children, to be waiting six hours under the sun. We drove 15 minutes away from there to a suburban area, middle-class white suburban area. The line was 15 minutes. So we saw that in the primaries, um, very serious problems with with lines and just misinformation. Uh, For example, all this misinformation on social media uh, is happening, and we have seen it in different states for example, um, I recently got information from one of my estates in Colorado where some of these groups associated with the campaign, and we know that these groups exist and it's been documented in major newspapers, are putting out information that says something like they included my organization, an African-American organization, and other uh, minority organizations or progressive organizations putting messages related to socialism and and other things that are really misleading uh, the voters. And they're just trying to scare people from participating in the process or making us sound like we are communist organizations, et cetera, just because we want actually a good democracy. Right. We see a lot of examples like this. There's, uh, as you said, a lot of darkness um, that has always been there, but has really come to the surface at the behest of Donald Trump and his administration. I want to switch gears for our last question really quick and and finish off the interview with the question we ask all of our guests. What gives you the most hope for the future? Hi, hi, hi. That's such a powerful and unique question. Hmm. In Asagni Migrants, in research shows this, and the polls shows this, we are the eternal hopeful. We are the most optimistic communities in in in, in the spaces. And I'm eternally hopeful. Um, immigrants tend to face constant challenges. And anytime we see an opportunity for improvement, anytime we see an opportunity for growth, anytime we see an opportunity to create a small business, that's why we have the highest percentage of creation of small businesses. We take it and we work hard and we dream. I'm so grateful to be American. Uh, I became a citizen three years ago. And I know that we can do better. We can be united. 
I know that in the community we're going to deliver in the immigrant community. I know that we're going to deliver in the Latino community. But we must really reflect as a nation of what kind of future do we want? Do we want a future of division, hate, and anti-democratic principles? Or do we want a division? Or do we want a nation in which we can disagree yet still work together to make a, a, a better democracy? I'm really convinced that that we're gonna get Trump out of office and that this is gonna serve us an, as an example to learn from the mistakes that we have done in the past, the kind of policies that got in Trump into the White House, and to strengthen the institutions that make us a better democracy. So I'm eternally hopeful uh, that after November 3rd, and actually after January 20th, that we're going to see hmm. more and better changes for our democracy. Wow. Thank you so much for such a powerful interview. This has been a great conversation. No, thank you for the invitation and for having these deep conversations about our nation and how can we move in a better direction, a direction that is not about hate and violence, but unity and more equity for everybody. Thank you for joining us and for stepping up to take action. We need it. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. And we want to hear from you. Tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. We really appreciate you being here with us. And Steve will be back with more <laughs> next Wednesday. We're going to miss you for a little while while you're on maternity leave, Mariah. We're going to have some guest hosts coming in to, to fill in for you. And hopefully you'll pop in, you know, whenever you feel like grabbing a mic. <laughs> I can't wait to listen. <laughs> we'll see you then. MSW.